<laughs> it will be live streamed on Disney Plus. <laughs> yes, it's, it's going to be called <laughs> Charles Becomes a Princess. <laughs> It's just Cinderella holding a shoe saying, sorry, service unavailable. <laughs> Want to go back to sleep. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. We are going to do a current events pod, which I tell you what, if that doesn't get you excited, nothing will. And I am here with two intrepid friends, which I will ask to introduce themselves at this moment. I'm Sarah Stringer. I'm the head of innovation here at Carry US. Strings for your what number? This is five? Four? I reckon we might even be on six, you know. Six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The all-time leader. Seriously. <laughs> and a voice from the past. Hi, everyone. It's Chelsea. Chelsea, you've managed to return to the pod. I tried not to. I scheduled them and I leave. That's the plan. Yes. So here's what we want to do. There's a bunch of stuff going on in the world, and we're going to try to do a super tight pod that sort of covers five or six of them. Let's jump in on Uber Topical right now at this moment. Disney Plus launches today, and... It's crashing. It's crashing. (laughs) It's crashing. They're having a little bit of demand issue. So, Sarah, what do we think? I mean, I guess it's not necessarily a demand issue, but it's an infrastructure issue. And I think this is something that a lot of brands need to bear in mind when they start like jumping into this idea of like, we're going to be a like direct-to-consumer service offering. Like, mm. how are you making sure that all your back end's going to work? Like, yes, you're great at creating awesome content, but can you actually deliver the hardware? And I think this is unfortunately a, a case of whether or not they say that, you know, demand has just outstripped what they expected. I mean, at the end of the day, your proposition is to have a magical experience for every touch point, and this doesn't feel like a magical consumer experience. Yeah, I think these things are difficult, right? I mean, whenever you take a massively loved brand and a portfolio of stuff that they've done and you provide access to it in some way, you really can't estimate how much demand is going to come. And so I, I am sensitive to that to that fact. However, you know, having said that, you know, maybe it changes how you do rollout strategy or maybe, I don't know. But it, this is not the first organization to find themselves in this situation. And it's when you're in it, it's a terrible, miserable feeling having been in a miserable space like this. But it is what it is. I, you know, I don't think the long-term damage to the brand is significant, but it, it's not a great way to start. No, and I think that, you know, users in this ongoing sense of like where does value lie in streaming wars and how many subscriptions am I going to have, I think Disney is one of those fundamentals that I think a lot of people are going to be happy to to spend their money with. But there's nothing more frustrating than a poor user experience. I mean, we find that most people won't even stick around for any type of experience that doesn't load within a couple of seconds. Yep. So I think this will be a make or break situation for them if they can't like sort this out like quicker because you will lose people to a poor experience. At the end of the day, if the content is available but it's not a great experience, people will find a way around to the delivery method. So it's Are a they- danger. Are they writing reliability and performance headlines over at Netflix right now? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I had an interesting situation recently with my Netflix. This is terrible for all the British people that might be listening to our pod. I apologize. It's taken me a long time to get on board with a great British bake-off, but I am now with you. 
And yeah, I, I tried watching uh, The Great British Bake Off on my iPad while I was traveling and it was interesting that it wasn't loading. And it was because Netflix is very smart about identifying where there's going to be the biggest demand and ensuring that they're making sure mm. that all of that content is available on local servers so you can have a positive user experience. So I know that they were having issues with the amount of demand that they had for something like El Camino. Mm, which was right. huge for them and, you know, a great release strategy and, if anything, a very interesting case study for the entertainment industry around releasing simultaneously in cinema as well as obviously on a streaming platform to yep. get your maximum effect. You know, these are some of the fundamentals that brands need to now start thinking about, which is, you know, how are you storing the content that is going to be most relevant and how are you making those predictions as to what content is going to be most relevant for people? Because in my view, even though I was a big fan of watching The Great British Bake Off, they hadn't necessarily queued that up for my local server that would be like servicing me. So again, a lot of learnings, I think, as we start to see more brands moving into service models. How do you make sure that you're learning the fundamentals of that? Good luck to Disney Plus. I'm sure Mickey and Minnie are behind the scenes plugging and unplugging servers somewhere. A hundred percent. And we those big gloves are going to be difficult to do that. <laughs> I was going to say that's <laughs> sort of. I don't know if the hands are built for that. Yeah. So let's talk real quick about another provider that launched recently, Apple TV+. Plus. You know, they're not opening with a library. They're sort of opening with seven or eight things and then an interface into the rest of your library of stuff from other providers. What, right. what do we make of that strategy? I mean, it feels kind of like a smart test and learn strategy. Like, don't put all of your eggs in loads of baskets by payrolling a whole load of, like, very expensive premium content, but place a few big bets on obviously some high talent and like quality storylines, see how they fare, and then start working through then what like an acquisition strategy looks like. I mean, I think it's interesting when you do look at, again, like a Netflix model, obviously they slap a Netflix original logo on a lot of things are obviously yes. created by other production houses. So Apple's coming out and obviously they're working with production houses and creating original content. It'll be interesting to see if they take a hybrid approach, but this is obviously a great data strategy for them to look at what are the patterns that we can see from streaming? Where is it popular? Who's it popular with? And using essentially those data breadcrumbs to then probably help inform then what that production and acquisition strategy will look like. I think that's right. I just don't think net new content creation is going to be their big, big push. I mean, I guess with the amount of independent creators that we're seeing these days, it might actually just be a great way of them in this democratization, I guess, of creation. How do you actually start identifying talent and the types of things that people have an appetite for? And then it'll be interesting to actually see how many of these like new service providers actually start sort of feeding themselves with like up-and-coming talent rather than pre-existing talent. At the moment, we're seeing a lot of pre-existing talent, but I think that there's a huge, huge amount of undiscovered talent that are probably like well worth picking up in, in this new environment. It seems like a really safe play, though, for Apple to do that. Like, how do you break through that clutter and how do you have those consumers going to Apple now when you, you're playing it so safe that it doesn't even seem real? Like, I don't know if I'd even go to that, to be honest. <laughs> Like I'd rather and, go to Disney Plus right and now so, and just and, see. And so far you haven't. Be unable to do the connection. <laughs> the conversation we just had before we came on. So far you haven't. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I recently bought a new iPhone, so I have a year free to Apple TV Plus, which is why I don't have the, the card and the headphones. Look, I have an Apple problem. We've established that before, um, but I'm in the I'm in the demo for it. Last week will forever be known as the week that. Silicon Valley had a disagreement over whether they were going to take election ads 
Oh. What do we make of that? Chelsea, do you want to kick this off? No, I don't. I was told <laughs> never to talk about politics, and I'm going to stick to that line until, until I die. I, mean, I think it was interesting that it was TikTok that actually kicked that off. I mean, obviously, well, Facebook being like, hey, we're a free-for-all, so right. <laughs> feel free to spend your money. We'll let, take it. Right, let it rip. Yeah, but I think it was interesting that TikTok decided that they wouldn't take any type of political advertising, which is interesting and also, I guess, sensible based on also by the fact that they're being investigated around the use of American data with a Chinese-owned company. So I guess they probably have enough on their plate to worry about, as well as then being probably accused of manipulating any type of election result. So that's fair. I think it's interesting that Twitter has then decided that they won't take any political advertising because something we're actually discussing in the office yesterday was where is then the boundaries if you're not allowed paid for advertising, yet it's still such a key source of misinformation and the spreading and amplification of misinformation? If you can't counteract that and counterbalance that with actually like truthful advertising from actual candidates, like, does that actually offer more issues than it solves by not taking that money? And yeah, I don't have an answer for that. But I just think it's a conundrum that, you know, as we see the further, I guess, weaponizing of advertising tactics in politics, is it good that you're like, well, we're not going to take any money, but that doesn't stop the fact that people are going to post up falsified like articles, and then people are going to share it. I think the problem is, though, that even if it's coming from a direct candidate, it's still not truthful. It could not be. Do you know what I mean? So like in some cases, it's their own yes. it's their own biases, right? So what is truthful advertising in politics? Like I don't even know what that looks like. Right. Yeah, look, this is a an incredibly complex issue, but I think it's got a couple turning points that are relevant. I think Twitter's move to me is an admission that they can't keep the money straight. And that there was just no way for them to know good actor, bad actor behind the money. And sure. so they just like forget it. Now, the problem is they don't know the good actors and the bad actors behind the non-paid-for stuff. Right. So I think to some extent it was just like, you know what, let's, we got a big enough issue as it is, let's limit our, our liability on the whole thing. Facebook, I do think, is some kind of strange interpretation of libertarianism, for lack of a better, you know, it, it is truly the, the rugged individualist <laughs> Silicon Valley mentality. Frontier. Yeah, I think that's sort of where this comes from. We talked the last pod we did with Mike Murphy a week ago. You know, they want to have the cake and they want to eat it too. They don't want to put their finger on the scale, but in so doing, they're absolutely putting their finger on the scale. And I think that's got to get rationalized, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if they don't rationalize it themselves, then I think government action will, will rationalize it. Probably the most interesting player, however, has been the silent player, which is the organization, the platform that has said the least, and that's Google. They've said kind of not a lot. And yet, you know, when you look at search, it's a massive, massive, massive paid political device. So what do we make of that decision? What Google's positioning was, what, don't be evil? But I guess... Well, I, yes, that is, <laughs> do, I think it's do no evil. Oh, do yeah. no evil. Yeah. And by comparison, I'd, I'd say that they do better than others in their category. I guess the, <laughs> the fact is, is that does truthful content like affect a quality score? You know, and what does the opportunity then come with on search? And do you start adding an element of verification into search that would allow like truthful or at least factually like correct content to actually be allowed to be paid for? And you know, it's amplified. It's an interesting question, right? So sure. we first started having a question about 
you know, sort of the veracity of the internet around search 12, 11 years ago, maybe even longer around, oh, if you go to Wikipedia and it's wrong, right? So if you go to Catherine the Great's page and it says, you know, Catherine the Great was the mayor of Chicago in the 1800s, that's wrong, right? right? We sort of had some of that conversation a really long time ago. So to some extent, Google's been in, been adjacent to this question of truth for some period of time. But I think they've, they've, I don't know whether it's the way they handle the sort of opaqueness of the algorithm or the way they just sort of don't wade in that has kept them out of the nexus of the fight yeah. to some extent. It's, it's sort of interesting. And I, and I guess they're trying to take the same approach here. It's funny because when I think of Google and political advertising, it's funny that I don't really think of search and I don't know no, why. No, well, that's and I the think point. That's, it's but smart. It, again, search as a whole gets to fly under the radar for a lot of different things Correct. because it's not necessarily the most top of mind, even though the spend is gigantic. Yeah. And the spend by campaigns on search is gigantic, especially when you think about you know the Democratic candidates and the you know making the stage requirements and the you know the number of physical donors that you have to get. I mean, search is a, a huge, huge way to to get at that. You know, Correct. you spend fifty million dollars to get ten thousand dollars in contributions just so you can get on the stage. I guess it's because it feels less opinion based, even though that's not based on anything. You that's know? correct. It is not based on anything. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, if you look at something like a, a Twitter or even like a you know self expression platform like a TikTok, you know, this is people offering up their opinion. But I think yep. there's a sense of this is official in search. And, and to your point, it's not necessarily official. It's not. And I think YouTube, again, flies under the radar, I think, a little bit in terms well, of sure. like that is absolutely very opinion-based. Mm-hmm. So I think that search is an interesting conundrum because it isn't something that I necessarily think about as could be affected, but of course it can be. Yeah. I feel like it's in the hands of the consumer, though. So when you're searching, it's your own choice to search whatever topic that is. So versus going on Facebook and seeing an ad that's pushed to you, that feels a little bit disruptive. Mm, And I don't know if truthful, but when I'm looking for, like if I just Google Elizabeth Warren right now, her website's the first thing that comes up. But like I don't need to click that. Of then other platforms that I think aren't necessarily talked about, Reddit's huge. Yeah, well, that is true too. And Reddit is probably one of the most political platforms. And obviously brands are still working out like their right to play in Reddit because right. it's such a precious environment. But I think when it comes to politics, like people don't hold back and people are very quick no. to bar people because they don't want to have that cross-pollination yep. of opinion. They want to find like-minded people that they can essentially create communities. It essentially is more divisive than it is, obviously. But it's also the least else. commercialized platform. Sure. Just by virtue of that, less of a of a topic. And I think for the media to cover it, a lot more complicated. Like a lot of people are just like, I don't even know how it works or what you, you know, and if I don't know the rules, I can't participate, so I'm out. But saying that, I think that most news articles that you that you see from like official news sites come from some sort of like initial idea spawned from Reddit. So I actually think Reddit has an effect on media more broadly than we give credit to. As a topical, as a place to begin topics. Yes. Oh, interesting. That's I like that hypothesis. That's that's provocative, Sarah. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. All right, we're going to jump to the next topic. Are you ready? Attention deficit gets worse. Starting tomorrow, we officially as a nation will have two gigantic things blocking out the sun. One is the president himself, and two is the president's impeachment proceedings on Capitol Hill. Right. So what in the world are we going to do? I mean, as marketers in this environment, it is, it is tr- quite literally, all kidding aside, impenetrable. 
So we ran a study. It was during one of the Senate hearings, and basically it was data from Pornhub that actually showed the <laughs> amount of views on Pornhub yes. drastically dropped due to certain like big political moments happening. And we were actually arguing that it was actually quite a good way of identifying key cultural moments and like like the attention economy, because if people aren't willing to be doing that, then they really are <laughs> very interested in what's going on in culture. Okay, so let me just summarize for our <laughs> listening audience. If you are distracted from porn, you are uniquely and clearly distracted. Is that your argument? <laughs> we do have a thought piece published in the trade press on this article, should you wish to look it up. It was written by one of our former strategists, Dan Carter. Um, so shout out to Dan for uh, producing like a very... Salacious thought piece. What um, was it called? Like the big turnoff? Is that? It, do, I mean, that's great, and right? we should definitely right. use that we going forward. That. Yeah, right, there you go. Oh, it was actually officially called Porn, the Dark Data Metric for Gauging Cultural Attention. I prefer yours. Yes, I, I think <laughs> I think the big turnoff is... Uh, agreed, yeah. agreed. Well, when we write the book, it'll be called the big turnoff. Perfect. I'm, yeah. I'm very down for that. I mean, the politics in general and that as a an issue for advertisers, obviously from tomorrow and going on for 2020. What we're going to see as the political issue around attention for advertising and just, I guess, content in general is that what's going to happen for the impeachment proceedings as well as what's going to happen with the election is essentially going to drive the mood of the nation, yep. how comfortable advertisers feel, even about just being in market. Yeah. And, you know, then as different topics become solidified as important issues, how you show up and present yourself as a brand, if you accidentally call upon something that might talk about medical or family or inclusion or what have you, all of those things sure. will undoubtedly then kind of have like a halo effect on that. So, you know, it's it's always a, a bit of a prickly time or a time that, you know, brands can get pretty worried, obviously, during elections. And, and also the other thing is also getting booted out of advertising space because of candidates actually advertising. So this is an issue that is faced in TV and around local TV, which yep. is that even if you're an advertiser and you've secured your space, you can get booted out, obviously, for political messages. Um, what we're going to see is actually the the rise of other, I have to say, very smart brands, like partners that we work with, actually putting forward the fact that if you book space with us, you will be able to like geo-target, but also you will not get booted for political advertising. So I think there's a brand new angle in on particularly a lot of our like younger, more digital players who are kind of going in with that narrative, which I think is very smart. And it'll be interesting to see how many traditional advertisers in this space start opting to probably test and learn in more digital places, knowing that contextually they can probably avoid some of that political noise. Yeah, I mean, I think it has massive mixed implications if some of the, you know, if you care about driving transactions or brand engagement in Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Pennsylvania, and you get the list, Anytime after September next year, good luck. Right. Good luck. I think you've really got to relook at what your strategy and your mix are. All right, we're going to jump ahead. Chelsea, this is a topic built for you. Are you ready? I hate when you say that. Okay, the generational divide. Jesus. So this whole hey boomer thing. Okay boomer. Okay boomer, hey boomer, whatever the <laughs> f*** it's called. As a Gen X, that is, that is a perfect summary of my attachment to this dumb issue. <laughs> Why do I care about this? In fact, again, this was another topic we were discussing in the office tomorrow because did you know it's actually, if you use OK Boomer in the workplace, it's actually a fireable offense. Because <laughs> if you're above if you're above a certain age, essentially boomers are a protected 
age group. Yes. So it's essentially age discrimination. For well, you it's to just use just because meme. they're boomers, they're protected. Though. Right. right. Yeah, they're a protected species. As are millennials. Uh, the only non-protected so you know, class that. that exists are are myself and Eddie Vedder and the rest of the grunge generation. As a millennial who is apparently lovingly slash not lovingly discussed as a snowflake, yeah. that is totally fine for us to be under a sweeping statement cultural abuse. So I can call you a snowflake. I don't have to like it, but you okay, can call me but that. But I can't call Nick yeah. a boomer. You can't say okay Oh, boomer. I can't go okay. Well, I can't even remember what the damn phrase is. Exactly, so, I don't know. so right. you're fine. <laughs> um, so I can't say okay boomer to Nick. No. But I can call you a snowflake. Yes. Like the internet obviously isn't going to hold back. Okay boomer has become a very hilarious, like, meme-worthy topic in its own right. I mean, the fact that two words essentially shut down an entire age group is hilarious to all the rest of us, but obviously it is age discrimination. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, I don't find it hilarious. I just find it absurd. I think it's kind of a testament to how annoyed people feel about, I guess, what's happening in politics and what's happening in the environment and kind of like this sense of... Brexit wouldn't have happened if boomers hadn't voted for what have you, and whether or not Trump would have happened if white boomers hadn't voted for Trump in certain environments. This, like, blaming all bad things on a particular generation seems like a terrible idea. Agreed. The reality is we are engaged in these things not just because of one particular generation. There are plenty of millennials who voted for Trump in various shapes and forms. Now, they may have other sort of demographic lenses through which they more deeply associate, but it didn't just happen because of an older population. But I I do think that is an overarching theme that a lot of people think. Well, I think the, yes, at the risk of being shot at, yeah, if your question is woke millennial Twitter, do they think that? Sure. (laughs) Absolutely, yes, that is what they think. That is what they think. Yeah. As someone from the outside on this, there are similarities between millennials and boomers that I think the two sort of react negatively to in the other. Yeah. So they're both massively large in terms of their footprint. They're both, I think, incredibly focused historically on their own situations. And I think there's a, a very deg- self-centered. Yes. Yeah, there's a degree of, <laughs> of self-centeredness in that. Sure. And so I think they like are two opposing magnets that repel each other because they are so similar on that. Right on that polarity and kind of being trapped in the middle is is actually rather entertaining except for the fact that my generation's going to have to pay for it all but that's a whole other problem yeah you sure will <laughs> sorry yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah no it's true it's true <laughs> last thing on this i do think it's interesting that the quote unquote gen x candidate has not manifested itself again in yet another you know i'll be 50 this year well next year we still have not had a gen x candidate manifest in the electoral process for president in this country. And we're now either going to go down super boomer route, right? you know, with a plus 75 candidate or, you know, Elizabeth Warren plus 70 candidate, or we're going to go uber millennial, you know, in the Mayor Pete Pete, 37. It's fascinating to me that we've, you know, all my sort of age compatriots in the middle, as we are in this conversation, are sort of trapped, you know, on the outside looking They're still paying. (laughs) <laughs> they don't have time. They are working they so hard. They're, they're taking care of their teenagers and their parents. That's right. why. Yeah, yeah. That's why. Okay, I have one more work-oriented topic in current events, which I have labeled, and I quote, innovative things. That's the official term for it, yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. So 
Strings, real quick, you were in a session this morning that I think struck you a little bit. I'm going to ask you for a super succinct summary of whatever that is, sure. uh, and we're going to label it Innovative things. Innovative things. Great. Well, um, so we run a regular session uh, here at Cara called Brave Brews. Try and say that as a tongue twister. And we essentially invite new and interesting partners in to talk to our teams about big macro trends that are taking place in market. And this morning, uh, we had Giphy in. So for anyone who doesn't like to express themselves through words, which is largely everyone these days, Giphy is essentially a plugin for pretty much every single one of your messaging apps, whether you might be on your iMessage, whether you're on Tinder, whether you're on Slack. And the fact is, is that people now get to sort of like visually represent their mood and kind of as like their reactions to things that are going on or conversations that they're having. So it's interesting for brands now to start thinking about how they essentially become part of a conversation in a way that they're invited in and they're actually like opted for versus just interrupting something that's currently taking place. And the very interesting thing about messaging is that messaging is actually one of the key drivers of most social platforms now. And so what you're seeing, again, is this like massive increase in the likes of Facebook and Instagram actually like really doubling down into messaging because what they're seeing is that direct one-to-one conversation or group conversation is incredibly important. And so it's, again, another area where ads are being avoided. But if you can actually create really interesting content that actually adds value to that experience, brands are actually being invited in. So we essentially had them in today to kind of talk to teams about how do brands do that in a new and interesting way? What are the most popular topics and ways that you can actually get involved? And then some of their newest innovations, which actually includes now mini games. They have this thing called Giphy Arcade, where users can actually create their own games using brands or stickers or random images that they prefer and actually play games against each other. So we're now working out how we can actually then offer value as like, a, oh, great, you just got the highest score. Do you want a voucher for something? Also labeled the land for the infinitely blessed with time. I mean, they're 15-second games, so I mean, I don't know how busy you are that you can't handle 15 seconds of mindless enjoyment. But... Well, at 15 seconds, I'm going to spend it in some other enjoyable mechanism. I don't know. But was there any chat about like the forms of measurement for Giphy? Yes, and I guess no. So <laughs> yes, in terms of they essentially are sold on a CPM. Their model is largely a search. So if you, for instance, are sponsoring the Grammys, you can have some of your sponsored gifts that are like, as an official partner, maybe like MasterCard would create gifts that would then show up as people like type in for Grammys. Now, obviously, you want to make sure that the content that is then showing up is actually going to be genuinely entertaining and useful for people to actually use. So basically, there's like the impression that you get from just showing up in that search. And then you get an engagement if someone actually clicks on it or shares it. Beyond that, then it's a little bit of a, a black box. So you don't know necessarily then if that GIF then got shared by other people. It could get shared to another five people. We can't track that. Mm. I, in a very old school way, described it in the meeting, which I think shocked many of our youngsters who were like, what? It's a bit like magazines and readership versus circulation. So, for instance, you have a circulation of a magazine, you know how many magazines are being printed and they've obviously been bought or, like, you know, put on a coffee table of a hotel. What you don't know is how many people then, say, in on that coffee table situation picked up the magazine and then read it. So then there's that sense of, you know, maybe it was nine people, maybe it was just the one person that bought it. So there's still this sense of, well, do we really know? No, we don't. But Ah, uh, the pass-along conundrum. Oh, the pass-along, exactly. The pass-along conundrum. So yeah, they but they are Moat. They are a partner of Moat, and they are basically their 2020 goal is to be more measurable. So good mm. question. That's mine too. 
So there is one last current event, Sarah, that is so important that we have not covered. It's a big one. It is without a doubt the largest current event of the week. Huge. What is it? I think it might be that our most bitter and twisted uh, (laughs) podcaster is actually going to have the happiest day of her life. (laughs) (laughs) Is it? So... Any last words of wisdom for other people out there who might be in a similarly engaged situation? Mm, no. It's a roller coaster of emotions and none of them are that great. <laughs> you're just trying to figure it out and you're too confused to figure it out and then you're just in a cloud. Then you're too tired to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. All right. Well, I'm very, very excited for you and I, I can tell that you are radiating the excitement that we expect yeah. you. Yeah. Michael said I had glowing skin today. I don't think he's seen me in a while. <laughs> <laughs> hey, radiating. You've been looking after yourself. I don't yeah. believe it. You're yeah. going to be a beautiful bride. Tons We're very proud of you. Yeah. We hope that you and Stefan are very happy together. Yeah, you can cut this part out. No, that part, that's the most important part. <laughs> yeah. We'll end with that. All right, everybody, thanks so much. That was another episode of The Human Element. Please remember you can find us anywhere you find your pods. And don't hesitate to subscribe or give us a like. Still free through the end of the year. We'll be back out to you real soon. <laughs>